You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. In light of the fact that we're trying to rediscover what it means this year for us to be a university church, I thought I would start the sermon with a pop quiz. So if you want, go ahead and pull out those blue books. I want to uh, read a page to you from Walker Percy. Uh, Walker Percy is a man who came to faith, a personal faith, out of illness in a hospital room. And he's got a kind of a twisted sense of humor, which is why I read him. Uh, so this will be a little bit bizarre for some of you, but it's a quiz. And the quiz is not to discover whether you have mastered a subject. The quiz is to help you discover whether a subject has mastered you. And that subject is the self. This book is called Lost in the Cosmos, the last great self-help book. Put yourself in this scene. You're standing by your paper tube in Englewood, New Jersey, reading the headlines. Your neighbor comes out to get his paper. You look at him sympathetically. You know he's been having severe chest pains and is facing coronary bypass surgery, but he's not acting like a cardiac patient this morning. Over he jogs in his sweatpants, all smiles. He has triple good news. His chest ailment turned out to be a hiatal hernia, not serious. He's got a promotion and is moving to Greenwich, which is where he can keep his boat in the water rather than on a trailer. (laughs) Great, Charlie. I'm really happy for you. Are you happy for him? Okay, here comes the quiz. First part, uh, multiple choice, A or B. A, yes, you are. This is unrelievedly good news. Surely it is good news all around that Charlie is alive and well and not dead or invalided. Surely, too, it's good for him and not bad for you if he also moves up in the world, buys a house in Greenwich where he can keep a 25-foot sloop moored in the sound rather than a 12-foot Mayflower on the trailer in the garage in Englewood. That's A. I won't ask you to raise your hand. B, putatively good news. It's good, but not so sure. But what? But the trouble is, it's good news for Charlie, but you don't feel good. See the self beginning to rise? Okay, well, if you ended up with B, which is where I would confess, I end up, there's, there's a, you have to parse that out a little bit more. So one more little quiz here. If your answer is B, could you specify your dissatisfaction? Do the following thought experiment. Which of the following news vis-a-vis Charlie and you at the paper tube would make you feel better? All right, so now I give you seven options. And number one's a little extreme, Charlie's dead. <laughs> You've got to be honest with this stuff. Okay, number two, Charlie has undergone a quadruple coronary bypass, and he may not make it. Number three, Charlie does not have heart trouble, but he did not get his promotion or his house in Greenwich. This is too far. Okay, four, Charlie does not have heart trouble and did get his promotion, but can't afford to move to Greenwich. That's four. Or how about this? Five, you too have received triple good news. So both of you can celebrate. That's good. I'm, you know, five sounds good to me. How about six? You've not received good news, but just after hearing Charlie's triple good news, you catch sight of a garbage truck out of control and headed straight for Charlie, <laughs> whose life you save by throwing a body block that knocks him behind a tree. Question, why does it make you feel better to save Charlie's life and thus turn his triple good news into quadruple good fortune? And then finally, seven, you've not received good news, 
But just after you hear Charlie's triple good news, an earthquake levels Manhattan. There the two of you stand, gazing bemused at the ruins across the Hudson from Englewood Cliffs. Oh, that's okay. So what is he asking us? <laughs> he goes, do you feel suddenly alive? Wow, that's something to notice. What does it mean? Does the self have mastery over us? Why is it so hard when good news comes so close to us but actually misses and nails a person next to us? Why don't we feel more fully alive at that moment? Why does something inside of us sometimes grieve? If you know that good news for Charlie is good news, but you don't feel that it's good news, then I want to suggest to you this quiz has shown you yourself may have more mastery in your life than you want. You're on notice. And I want to suggest to you uh, um, that I'm on notice, too. I was preparing this sermon. I was thinking back, you know what, just about two weeks ago, as you know, I was on vacation. I was sitting in a swimming pool, just enjoying myself, sunny day, blue water. The doors to this pool open up, a small pool, and uh, a man walks out, and he's on his phone. And I know you're not supposed to listen to other people's conversations, but it was loud, and it was kind of interesting. So I was... (laughs) and at first, I didn't know what he was talking about. He was doing math or something. There were numbers, 2.5, uh, 1 plus 3, 4. And I, the tone of voice suggested he must have been ordering pizza. I could see his family was there, and they were all relaxed. The kids were in the pool. And this guy's about my age, just maybe a little bit younger. And I thought, it's nice. They're having pizza for dinner, and he's talking to them. Then I realized he'd use his words like property and land and construction. And these numbers are not... Um, uh, 1.50, it's 1.5 million, and 2 million, and 4 million, I realized this guy is building a second home at that price. And all of a sudden, I wasn't thinking, this is really great for him and his kids. <laughs> I'm thinking about, all of a sudden, I'm thinking about my life. I know, I'm shocking you. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going, what about the decisions I made? And, I, you know, this guy knows a world that I will never know. And I, and I just begin to go into self-pity. Now, before you start to pity me, I want you to take... I am sitting in a swimming pool on vacation in a resort in the mountains with a totally healthy family. Uh, my wife loves me. That's a major miracle. And I got the best job in the world. So, I mean, I'm thinking, wait, you straighten yourself out. But there's something with all of that inside of me that makes me feel bad. That's the power of the self. In my life, and Jesus comes to rescue us from that kind of comparison and tyranny. John the Baptist understands that. John the Baptist is a man who had a resistance to what I call the hungry self, the the self as black hole that would just suck everything into it, that never gets satisfied. That was not John the Baptist's life. John was great, but when he let Jesus increase, he knew he was greater. See, that's the theme of his life. He must increase, but I must decrease. I want to show you a picture of this. 500 years ago this year, a man began to paint this painting. It took him three years to do. It's actually very large. Uh, Matthias uh, Grunwald, German painter, contemporary of, of Martin Luther, the reformer, painted this for a monastery in Eisenheim, northeastern France. It was a monastery that cared for those who were suffering from the plague a plague that would inflict the victim with sores that would ooze. And if you look closely, you'll see that Jesus hanging on the cross has these sores all over his body, so identified 
with those he's come to love. He bears within his flesh their own infliction. And you also see that the uh, crossbar is bowing under the weight of the sins of the world. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. On the left, we have uh, some mourners. Mary Magdalene, John the Evangelist are comforting Mary, the mother of Jesus. On the right, who's that? This is John the Baptist. And, and, and John the Baptist catches our attention perhaps more than any of the other figures because of his feet. Look at his feet. They're square towards you. He appears to be looking at you, and so it captures your attention. But as your eyes move up his body through his torso, you're drawn down his right arm to that finger, that hand, which is pointing at Jesus. Behind the hand, there's a Latin inscription, and it's our text. He must increase, but I must Decrease. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. If you've read Dave Rohr's new book, which is wonderful, he reflects on this painting a little bit. He says that John is reminding us of, quote, the tandem truths of our brokenness and of God's grace. John's saying, don't look at me. Look at him. There, God's grace encounters my brokenness and yours. I've wondered... Why isn't John the Baptist on the left and the mourners on the right, right? We read from left to right in, in our, most of our cultures. And uh, it would be natural, therefore, to have the forerunner, John the Baptist, on the left. That's where the story begins and have the mourners on the right after the cross, the crucifixion. But I think that Matthias has reversed the order to help us to see that we now live in the era of John the Baptist. We now model our lives on John the Baptist. We live on the far side of the cross and we look backwards to the cross and we point to him. We point to Jesus. We want him to increase in our lives, in our church, in our world today. That is our mission as it was John's. F.B. Meyer, the British evangelist, says the only hope of a decreasing self is an increase in Christ. John the Baptist understood that. That's where his immunity to the hungry self came in. John was a great man. You've heard Jesus say, no one born of woman was greater, which I I just thought kind of left room for some really great pets or something. But John the Baptist, a great man. But he was great because Jesus was the greatest in his life. And we tend to think about him as a kind of a minor figure in the gospel story. Little John the Baptist gets it started. And then he's, I want you to know that John the Baptist was an absolute rock star in first century Judaism. His movement was massive. Thousands of people. He was turning Judean society upside down. Herod was curious about Jesus, but he was terrified of John the Baptist. Josephus, the Roman historian, remarks on Jesus, but he is in awe of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's movement is so great that it, it, it continues to grow. Even after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, even after Pentecost, John the Baptist is still gathering followers and his movement is spreading. Even in Acts chapter 18, for example, the followers of Jesus continue to bump into followers of John the Baptist. In Acts 18, Priscilla great leader in the early church, meets a man named Apollos who's from Alexandria, Egypt, way south. And she meets him in Ephesus, way north and and, uh, west, modern-day Turkey, almost in Europe. And he's a follower of John the Baptist. She preaches the gospel to him. He's a great teacher already for John. Now he becomes a witness for Jesus. But that's how great John was. And, 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 in, in, and uh, Jesus is relatively unknown, the moment of our text. 
That's why you could imagine the trouble that some of these disciples of John felt in the scene that you just read about. Jesus has apparently moved into the neighborhood. He's apparently beginning to imitate John's techniques. I mean, we've got a, an intellectual property issue here. Jesus is starting to baptize, you know, uh, just like John had baptized. By the way, do you know that John the Baptist introduced his early followers to Jesus? John is the one who connected them. John introduced Jesus to Peter and to Andrew and to John the Evangelist. They were all there as a part of John's movement. Jesus himself was there as a part of John's movement. And then John said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world and points at Jesus. And these followers begin to interact with Jesus. And now Jesus has apparently taken some of these followers, he's peeling off a section of John's movement, and he's starting to do his same stuff. And rightly, we would think, these followers of John are outraged. And they come to him and say, Are you going to stand for this? And John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And he says an interesting thing in verse 29b. He says, my joy has been fulfilled. Now, that doesn't mean his life is over and he's on the way out. And I had joy once because he uses the past tense. He's using a tense in Greek. It's called the perfect tense. It's, it's, it speaks of a past action with continuing benefits. We don't have this in English. A past action with continuing benefits. Benefits, which is to say that John's answer is, I have made a decision about Jesus that gave me joy and continues to give me joy every day that I remember it. My joy has been and is being fulfilled as Jesus increases. That's where his immunity comes from. His decision is to find his greatness in the greatness not of himself, but of Jesus. So I want to be real practical here in the next few minutes. and I'm just going to give you two practical implications of this. The first implication is that uh, an, uh, an increasing Jesus gives us gratitude. Gratitude is the first implication of an increasing Jesus. What these disciples essentially say to John is, something is being taken from you. And you and I know that feeling very well. As we age, as things change, as our parents, our children begin to mature, as we don't have the things that we want to have. We know that feeling of something is being taken from you. John the Baptist says, no, no, no. Look at verse 27 of chapter 3. No one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. I know a God in Jesus Christ who is not one who takes from people, but who gives. I know that what I have and what Jesus has and what you have and what they have... These are all gifts of heaven, great gifts of an abundant God. And whereas they have a zero-sum mentality, which is, you know, there's only so much water here, there are only so many people here, and the more Jesus gets of it, the less you get of it, John. John doesn't have a zero-sum mentality. He's got an abundance mentality. And, and, and the text points to that. Did you notice? You read it. It said J J John was baptizing there where the waters were abundant. The Jordan River. John the Evangelist is wanting you to notice there's just so much water. There's plenty of water. He even says John's movement continues to grow at this time. There are plenty of people. See, it's an abundant God that we serve and that we know in Jesus Christ. Gratitude. What does it mean not to manage what I don't have, but to be grateful for what I do? Think of our culture, how it drives us to get more and more and more and to see ourselves as not having enough. Every ad on TV is designed to make you feel somehow incomplete without X. And we sacrifice so much for X. 
Day after day, year after year, we, we sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our money, we sacrifice our education, we sacrifice our relationships, our family, our health sometimes, all to get more. When the irony is we have a Father who loves us. If you know Jesus Christ, you know abundant, abundant love. He's not withholding anything from you. John the Baptist knows that. What makes you grumble? And I told you what made me grumble this summer, but that's just me. What about you? Do you look across a room like this and you see somebody who's really athletic? Someone's totally built? I know you're not looking this direction if you do. <laughs> and you say, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that vigor. Or you think, you know, I know this is such a great family church. I feel at odds here because I don't have a family. And I just, I don't know, why has God not allowed me to have a family? Maybe you do have a family, and you look at those healthy kids who are doing well in their school, and you go, that family will never know what we've had to go through. They'll never get it. And you look over there, and you just feel empty inside. Be careful, that's the self beginning to emerge. We're all like Iago in Othello, who looks over at Cassio and says, he hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. And we think that that the self is leading us to increase our lives, but really what it's doing, it's diminishing our life. Henry Fairley, the British writer, says, the envious man does not love himself, although he begins with self-love. He's not grateful for or happy in what he is or what he has. The sin is deadly, envy, less because it destroys him than because it will not let him live. He will not let him live as himself, grateful for his qualities and talents, such as they are, and making the best and most rewarding use of them. John goes, I, I don't, I'm not going to go there. I don't know what's happening in the future. But I know in whom I find joy, and that's Jesus. He gives me good gifts. What would, what would be different about your week this week if when you found yourself beginning to grumble about something that you didn't have, you turned to gratitude. And he said, thank you. Thank you for what you have given me. Jesus gives us an opportunity to embrace our circumstances, even ones that are unwelcome, because we know that in heaven there is one who continues to give. Ask yourself this. What if what I have is what he wants? What if what I have is what he needs for me to develop my eternal character, to become like him? What if I were to stop measuring my stuff by the world's standards and start measuring it by God's love? See, Jesus turns grumbling to gratitude when he increases in our lives. That's the first implication. The second implication is this. Uh, an increasing Jesus increases as we serve. See, in, in the first instance, John's disciples reminded him that Something's being taken from you, as they saw it. They're also reminding him that something is interfering. That what you want to achieve, John, is being limited in some way by your circumstances. And John, again, says that's just the self. I'm not a self-made man. I'm a man that's been made by Jesus. Jesus is the one who defines my mission, and Jesus is the servant. He came to serve, and so he sends me to serve. I, I love the way John the Baptist says it. I think with a smile and a wink, I am not the Messiah. You know, show up tomorrow morning. At your, well, okay, it's Tuesday morning if you got tomorrow off. 
and, and put a little uh, post-it on your computer that says, I am not the Messiah. <laughs> that is so liberating. You know, it's so, it's so scary for me to be the pastor of this church, but I just have to say to myself, I am not the Messiah. There he is. And the same is true for John the Baptist and the same is true for you and me. And he says in verse 28, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. That is to say, I've been sent by the Messiah to share in his mission of service in the world. You've been sent. You like John. You like me. This is John's destiny. Remember when he was in utero, he leaps in his mother's womb when just coming into the presence of Jesus, who's still in the womb as well. He leaps. Imagine if John had seen his relationship with Jesus as a competition. I mean, how tragic that would be. This man whose destiny is to find his joy in the ascending Jesus Christ. If these disciples had prevailed on him and he'd begin to see his striving as the real thing, trying to get more crowds than Jesus does, trying to peel disciples away from Jesus, trying to have the bride himself and not be the friend of the groom who rejoices at the wedding, his joy would be gone like that. If you want to know where your joy has gone, remember this, that when you give yourself away, when you give yourself away in service to others, you are filled with Jesus Christ. And you'll know a depth of joy you would not know otherwise. In 1995, my wife and I were living in Boston, Massachusetts. And just a few miles west of us, in Lowell, Methuen, there was a, a fire. Do you remember Malden Mills? They were the folks that brought us Polar Tech fleece. 3,000 employees and a building lost just like that in a night, two weeks before Christmas of all times. The Malden Mills factory, massive fire. Biggest fire in Massachusetts in 100 years, and it's gone. And it's not just now the loss of this factory or Polar Tech fleece, but it's the loss of jobs in this economy. It was devastating. You know the owner of that company? Aaron Feuerstein. Aaron Feuerstein was very different from so many American managers. Think of Enron, who used his employees, who used their employees for their own benefit. Aaron Feuerstein said, I am here to serve. What I have, I have been given, and it is my privilege and my delight, if you hear him interviewed, to share it with. What did he do? He said, you know what? We're going to rebuild this place. You're kidding me. He's got a $300 million insurance payout. Uh, and he's rich. He says, what, what am I going to do? Buy another suit? Uh, you know, eat a bigger meal? You know, he's in his 70s at this time, I, I think. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to rebuild this factory. So he invests that money, but more. He says, for the next 30 days, I'm going to carry the salaries of every one of my employees. He would do it again at a burn rate of $1.5 million a week. There are pictures of his employees kissing his hand. And when they ask him, why are you doing this? This is the worst business decision. He says, oh, I think it's a good business decision, but that's not why I'm doing it. Why he's doing it, he quotes Jeremiah 9, 23 through 34 in perfect Hebrew. He's an observant Jew. And then he translates it this way. Let the rich man not praise himself, but rather by demonstrating the will of God, show kindness, justice, and righteousness in his actions. Here's a man who sees his personal mission in life to reflect the generosity of God through service. See, Jesus turns striving into serving. 
And Jesus would turn right around. You say, ah, it's, you know, it's rich people fine. It's prophets. It's fine. But I'm just a regular guy. I want to tell you, Jesus is after regular gals and regular guys. He says on Easter, resurrected, my peace I give to you. And now, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. You have a mission. You have a mission nobody else has given to fulfill. You've been made for it. Jesus has given his life to rescue you so that you can fulfill it. He empowers you through his Holy Spirit so that you're enabled to succeed at it. And it's a mission of service. How would your striving or struggling begin to look different this week when you see it as an opportunity to serve? Think about that. Would this look differently if I saw it as an opportunity to serve? I just, uh, one of our elders just a couple years ago um, had to have chemo treatments, and he decided when he went into the, that clinic that he was going to see it as a ministry to the people who were there, the men and women in that clinic. And he had to go back. He just told me he had to go back uh, for some tests, and they remember his name because he got to know them and he loved them and he would bring them uh, baked goods every time he came in to be, for them to hook him up on an IV. What would happen if you begin to see this struggle that you hate as an opportunity, as a God-given opportunity to serve in the name of Jesus Christ? What would happen if I stopped asking, how do I get my way and help somebody else get theirs? My spouse, my children, my neighbors, my boss even, my subordinates. At work. John made a decision about his life, and it gives him great joy. He is great when Jesus is greatest, and so are we. But John can make that decision because Jesus has already made his decision about John. And God has made his decision about you. He made it about you and Jesus Christ on the cross. And when Jesus came back from the dead, you belong to me. I love you. I want to resource you to fulfill the purpose for which I created you. John says in chapter 1, he ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And this is the one who is before us as well. Because he loves us, we can say, he must increase. And we can say what Ada Whittington said, the hymn writer in 1891, who wrote, Not I but Christ be honored, loved and exalted. Not I but Christ be seen, be known and heard. Not I, but Christ in every look and action. Not I, but Christ in every thought and word. Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in Thee. Oh, that it may be no more I, but Christ that lives in me. Would you pray with me? God, we're here this morning. We may not know the reason, but we know now that we need to be saved. We are like the captives of ancient Israel in Egypt. And we cry out, Hosanna, save us. Save us from the tyranny of the self. For freedom you have set us free. So release us now to know the depths of your love and to share it with one another in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.